From the beautiful city of West Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome back to Film Forward and Happy New Year. Happy 2020. That sounds very weird to say. 2020. Well, we're so pleased to have our guest with us today, Kit Williamson. Kit began his career on Broadway, appearing in the Tony-nominated revival of Talk Radio. He also appeared on a little show called Mad Men. And most importantly, he is the writer, director, producer, and star of the series Eastsiders, which streams on Netflix and has just released its fourth and final season. Kit. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell the audience, for those who don't know about Eastsiders, what Eastsiders is all about. Eastsiders is a dark comedy about a gay couple and their friends living in Silver Lake, California, and the sad and funny messes that they make out of their lives. We started it in our living room back in 2012 when I was in grad school. My husband and I were broke and working at a diner in Sunset Junction trying to figure out what our place was in this stupid fucking industry that we've all decided <laughs> against all logic to take part in. And uh, and it's really defined the last seven years of my life. We've had an incredible journey going from YouTube to to Netflix, where the show is now available worldwide and subtitled in more than 30 languages. Which is very exciting, and congrats on all the success the series has gotten. You know, over the seven years, it's been nominated for eight uh, Daytime Emmy Awards, which is amazing and is well-deserved. Talk to us a little bit about how the series got incepted. Like I mentioned, you were doing work on Broadway, and you started getting, you know, some roles in television and some small roles in films and stuff. What made you want to create this series yourself? You know, it's really funny. We're As we enter 2020, uh, a lot of people have been posting those decade in reviews mm-hmm. and listing just their 10 accomplishments from the last 10 years or, or whatever, the things that they're proud of. And I was inspired by a post that somebody else made to do that and then also kind of continue on and tell the rest of the story, fill in the gaps of the parts that weren't so glittery and um, that that weren't just the accomplishments, but all the sacrifices and hard work that had to come to get that. I was very lucky to do a Broadway show while I was in college, while I was an undergrad at Fordham, and then my unemployment ran out, and (laughs) I had to start working at a Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. I had literally never even waited tables before, so here I am with this like massively inflated view of myself and my talents, working at the Universal City Walk Bubblegum Shrimp Company, and I got dropped by my agent. I just want to say, I manager. love Bubblegum Shrimp. First, let, let's just they start. freeze the shrimp. I don't it's care what they frozen. do to it. I don't care what they do to it. That, I will eat it. it they need good. to let their waiters have more than three tables in their section. If you're listening, Bubba Gump Corporate, you only make $45 a night. It's fucking shit. Uh, Treat your employees better, but you make good yeah, shrimp. But you, but you make damn good shrimp, I'm told. I don't know. I've been a vegetarian since I was a 10-year-old. So every single like table that I go to, yeah, man, the shrimp and dipping broth is real good. I've never fucking tasted that in my life. But I kind of like fall in on hard times in L.A. You know, yeah. I, I'd been dropped by my whole team, and I decided to go to grad school trying to find a direction in my life and also trying to find creative autonomy because auditioning is deeply, profoundly unsatisfying to to me as, as a creative. Um, just It feels sometimes like throwing your creativity into the mouth of the beast. Like, all right, well, I worked for a week on that, and I didn't get the parts, and nobody will ever know how 
damn good I was in my Speed Racer callback. Right. Which I did, by the way, get multiple callbacks for Speed Racer. Was never going to fucking book it, but <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> the kind of shit that I was going out for when I had real fancy representation that um, wanted me to be the new teen dream. Mm-hmm. So I made Eastsiders my second year of grad school as a birthday present to myself. I saved up money working at a diner, and we shot the first two episodes for $2,000 and a stick of gum to hold the whole thing together. Just called on all of our friends, uh, everybody who I had done favors for, holding the boom for their thesis short or um, you know, acting in their genre short film that they shot in their living room, and, uh, and kind of had this real community sort of coming together feel to make those first two episodes that we then put on YouTube, not really knowing what to expect, and just were so blown away by the response and uh, and knew that after the show went viral that we really needed to do more. Absolutely. And I mean, those first two episodes are so strong. The characters are so developed. And in the first two episodes, you use this, this storytelling tactic, which you use, you know, a few more times throughout the series, this time jump play. How did you decide to use that uh, storytelling method and, you know, what what drew you to it? I love stories that are told out of sequence. Yeah. Um, one that springs to mind is uh, Rules of Attraction by mm-hmm. Freddie Sinellis. Um, uh, that was like a big movie for me when I was in high school and trying to feel cool. <laughs> um, and uh, and I'm a playwright at heart. I was getting my MFA in playwriting at UCLA. So the idea of nonlinear storytelling is, is something that I don't shy away from at all. I think it's really interesting to see an action, see a character, and have a fixed idea about who they are and why they are the way that they are, and then have all of your understanding of that character upended by knowing what actually happened. And we explore that in a lot of subtle ways. There's, there's, it's not a mystery. You know, you know at the beginning of the first episode within the first minute that Tom is in the doghouse for cheating on my character. He's literally sleeping on the floor next to a bucket of my puke. Uh, <laughs> and you kind of think that you, – you, but you don't have a full understanding of the night. You don't really know – exactly what's going on and maybe you even don't like my character because I'm having such an intense response to this very likable, charming, handsome man played by Van Hansis Um, and then to see like kind of the humanity and the grit of that in the night before and and how completely caught off guard my character was by the fact that he'd been dating somebody else on the side for two months. I think that that's, that's something that you can only do by messing up the timeline. Absolutely. And it's something you do very well because I, so many times throughout the series, I found myself as a viewer getting very upset at some of your characters. Yeah, you good. Know, either, whether it be you or Tom or, or some of your other supporting characters. And then, you know, to the point where I'm just like, Cal, leave him. Fuck him, <laughs> leave him. And then, you, and then you jump back and you see, you know... In one episode, I'm very close to loathing a character, and then the very next episode, we take a step back and we learn about the backstory, or we see a- another element of their relationship that makes me completely negate that uh, that feeling. I think in relationships, it's it's really easy to lose sight of the sum of your experiences in the heat of a single fight. Absolutely. But everything is true all at once. It's actually a show that I I absolutely have been devouring and loving over the last month is Watchmen. Mm -hmm. And I think that they touch on these themes in really beautiful ways in, uh, spoiler alert, in the final two episodes of that show. And this is the idea of Dr. Manhattan existing within all kind of timelines at the same time. He's experiencing the fight 
with Regina King's character at the same time that he's experiencing meeting her at the same time that he's experiencing falling in love with her. And I think that that's a, there are lessons in that that can be applied to anybody's relationship. Absolutely. The fight that you're having, that's just right now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't define who you are as a person and your whole— Or as a couple. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. You were talking earlier about sacrifice and, you know, kind of the sacrifices that you had to make to make this series. And, you know, in speaking generally, the sacrifices we have to make as artists. Talk to us about some of the sacrifices you made with your husband creating this series. You guys literally filmed this in your apartment. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you filmed, you guys continue to film in your oh, apartment throughout, four, the, yeah. throughout four, the entire baby. series. Every, yeah. Which, it, we established uh, the location. Don't want the characters <laughs> to move and I don't want to pay for a new one. Right. So. Um, but, you know, as convenient as I'm sure it was, it was probably also at sometimes not so convenient. Oh, it was very hard on John, but it was especially hard on the cat. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right. not kidding. The cat is traumatized. The cat sees a boom pole come out of the <laughs> supply closet and literally gets low to the ground and runs under the bed. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you probably don't want 20, um, you know, smelly crew members coming in here and stomping around and eating stinky food and yelling at you, do you? Right. <laughs> I get it. But how was it for you? Was it kind of upending your life for this project for a month at a time or sometimes longer? What's that process like? Well, you know, we sometimes refer to it as our web series baby. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have an actual baby. Uh, who knows if we ever will. Uh, not really preoccupied with that question right now, but um, I'm starting to think about it. But All right, I'm not that was my next question, yeah. so let me cross that out. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know... I call it a web series, baby, because it will die if you don't tend to it literally every day of your existence. You don't get to forget about your baby for the weekend. You've got to, like, take care of your baby, you know? And and there's really not been a day that's gone by over the last seven years that my husband and I haven't in some way focused on this thing that we've created together and this community that we've built together, this story that we've told together. And that may sound hyperbolic, but it's it's really not. There were about a dozen opportunities for us to say, okay, cool, we're at our ceiling, let's let this one go, you know? But we've come back each season because we saw an opportunity to go further. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely had a strain on our relationship, on our lives, on our checkbooks, you know, like our our pocketbooks. Um, I sound like a Mrs. Maisel, I'm on our pocketbooks. (laughs) Um, But it's been so rewarding and it's created so many career opportunities for not just me, but for my husband as well. Uh, we were both waiting tables when we started this, and I've now sold multiple television shows. Um, I have a couple of things in development that I can't talk about right now, but that might change my actual fucking life. And my uh, my husband now works in social media as a direct result of running the accounts for the show. That was his first experience amazing. doing that. That's amazing. So this is your web series baby, and you guys have been living with this thing for seven years, mm-hmm. but now it's kind of coming to a head and you guys are wrapping up you just finished your final season you're finishing up all the uh the promotion and everything for it so emotionally what what is that it's got to be a different kind of feeling now how do you guys put it to bed and move on it's got a mixed bag of emotions it's bittersweet but it's very satisfying i mean Mm -hmm. the response that we've been getting from all of the fans has been just overwhelmingly positive and loving and we and gratifying you know it, it it I hope that we stuck the landing. People are telling me that we stuck the landing. And I do truly believe that good stories have endings. And that that's part of the problem in uh, 
American television specifically mm-hmm. is that we network television double specifically is that we just drag things on and on and on because that's what's serving uh, the network's pocketbook right? Um, rather than serving the story. And I, I didn't want to unnecessarily imperil these characters' lives and relationships over and over and over again. How many times do you really want to see two people break up? You know, like maybe they should stay broken up if they have to break up every season. <laughs> um, and and I, I wanted to um, give a sense of finality and close these sort of narrative loops. I may not be done with the characters forever, uh, but I'm definitely done with this format. It's just too much on this budget to bring all of these actors, some of which have become just wildly successful, together in in the same place because to shoot a show on this budget we have to uh, we have to block shoot it like Mm -hmm. basically two feature films back to back two and a half feature films back to back um that is a a hard task with a tiny cast and we have a huge cast this season including some of the world's most famous drag queens so navigating that scheduling availability matrix is a nightmare that i feel i will never wake up from (laughs) (laughs) Um, and i'm very very glad to not be uh you know to not be doing it right now but i do kind of wake up in a cold sweat worrying about what drag queen needs to be in dubai this weekend still (laughs) to this day flashbacks uh, we are talking endings. We're talking saying goodbye and putting our babies to bed. And we're talking with Kit Williamson. We're going to take a break and we'll be talking more about Eastsiders when we come back on Film Forward. Submissions are open for the 2020 Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival, but not for long. Late deadline ends on January 31st and the extended deadline ends on February 28th. Submit your film today before it's too late. For more info, visit LADFF.com or find us on Film Freeway. Welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are here with Kit Williamson, creator of the eight-time Emmy-nominated series Eastsiders, which is now streaming on Netflix. You can catch the entire series, including its fourth and final series now on Netflix. (laughs) Kid, I want to talk about some of the themes and the subjects that we tackle in in the series, and some of them very heavy. You know, we talk about alcoholism and STDs and open relationships. Open relationships is like a big theme that's, you know, kind of carried throughout the series. Was that something that you always knew that you wanted to carry through the whole series when you incepted the series? Um, Or was it something that kind of just evolved from the characters? Well, I think behind that theme is the theme of commitment Mm -hmm. and communication. Right. And the way the characters evolve, whether they're monogamous or open, and there are all kinds of different relationships depicted in the shows from a monogamous couple, uh, adopting a child to a non-monogamous couple getting gonorrhea. (laughs) Um, But what is at the core of all of that is communication and commitment. What does commitment really mean to you in a queer relationship? Starting in 2012, um, you know, we started the series before gay marriage was even legal. It didn't even like seem like a possibility. So having the final season tackle gay marriage in a a really subversive way of having a, a drag queen getting married in drag and broadcasting the ceremony to all of her YouTube subscribers on a live stream. <laughs> um, I, I think that it the show has really tried to uh, holistically kind of approach all of that while at the same time tackling issues that are uniquely queer. That's something that's always been really important to me uh, is asking myself, could this storyline 
really unfold in the same way if it was just a straight couple. I'm not interested in my queer independent series that I shoot in my living room tackling assimilationist stories. I want to tell stories that are unique to the queer community because those are the stories that aren't going to be told right. on a larger scale. So season one is really a story about infidelity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cal, my character, finds out that Tom has been cheating on him for two months. They resolve to stay together and work through their issues. Tom promises that he'll break things off with Jeremy. Spoiler alert, he goes and sleeps with him. And then the twist um, in episode three that, uh, again, spoiler alert, uh, a lot of people uh, wouldn't necessarily see coming, approaching it from a more heteronormative point of view, is that Cal goes over to Jeremy's apartment to confront him about sleeping with his boyfriend. Uh, They hit it off and have sex. So that wouldn't happen in a heterosexual relationship. (laughs) Right. That kind of love triangle, that kind of subversion of... um, uh, the idea of uh, the, you know, this, the man who strays, uh, that's, that's something that I think is uniquely queer. And I, I constantly try to tackle storylines like that in the, in the show. What is, what's something that only a queer character could experience? Which I think is great because we don't see those stories. I hadn't really seen them ever. And, you know, if you're not going to tell them, then who the hell is? And hopefully now more people will. I think we get one show that is specifically... Uh, curated for or designed to cater to our community every three years. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing representation explode on television. Like the most recent Glad Media report is like really affirming and amazing seeing all of the LGBTQ characters on television um, from pose to uh, representation within larger universes like Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy's work. Um, We are in a golden era of LGBTQ representation. That was not really the case in 2012. Mm -mm. Really kind of all we had was looking and modern family. Right. And uh, the occasional bone thrown our way um, in in a character that oftentimes uh, existed solely to be queer and walk off screen. Yeah, the token Um, character. Yeah, the token character and and also a completely defanged and neutered character. Mm -hmm. Um, A character who's, let's say... uh, such a model character, such a role model that they were uh, above the fray in terms of any sort of conflict or flaws. And Eastsiders really came out as, as a response to that because I'm a human being and I want to see characters with flaws and complexities like me, people who uh, I can relate to. I can't, I can't relate to, to a perfect person. And I uh, challenge you to find somebody who actually can. Right. And that's the beautiful thing about your show and what it does and creating queer characters that are flawed is what happens is pe- viewers like me, I am not queer, but I am very flawed. <laughs> I end up relating. It opens you guys up to a new audience and it brings a new audience, hopefully, to more queer cinema, queer shows, because it's relatable. You know, it's really interesting. I... I've not received a lot of uh, negative pushback from straight audiences. Mm -hmm. And we do have a lot of straight people, women in particular, who watch our show and reach out to us. Um, The only kind of pushback I've ever gotten is from gay men uh, who are, I think, worried about the world seeing gay uh, other gay men as um, being imperfect. Right. Like the slut shaming, the pearl clutching, the... um, 
the the fretting over the character's drug and alcohol consumption. I don't think anybody with half a brain would watch this show and think it's espousing the idea that anybody should drink even half as much as right. Cal <laughs> and Tom drinks. Right. Uh, I think, you know, my, my characters are not ever going to be punished for being bad, like we're in an 80s slasher movie or some bullshit. But I, I do think that we adequately explore the potential consequences of getting too drunk and trying to have a conversation about your relationship. Oh, you see the emotional repercussions <laughs> of it immediately. See their lives <laughs> blow up. Uh, you know, that's that's one of our taglines of the show is the sad and funny messes that you make out of your life. Yeah, it's your own damn fault you got too drunk and got in a fight with your boyfriend. But sometimes in vino veritas, <laughs> you know. Um, so it, it's it's such an interesting thing, uh, and it, it's it's definitely like a, a small shred of the feedback that we've gotten. It's certainly not a lot of people who've come out with like the criticism of the show propagating stereotypes or cliches, quote unquote. Um, but I would say in some ways the show is about stereotypical behavior and in humanizing and creating a full three-dimensional picture of somebody who might drink too much, of somebody who might cheat on their boyfriend. Um, and what's their humanity underneath that? They don't stop existing just because you decide you hate one thing that, that they did or one thing about them. Absolutely. You know what that's called? Respectability politics. You should Google it. You know who was really into it? Bill Cosby. You know where he is? Jail. I'm not saying you're going to go to jail, but I am saying stop being Bill Cosby. Exactly. Bill Cosby, we don't support you on Film Forward. I'm just saying if you are spending so much time performing for other people, I have to wonder what you have to hide. Exactly. What's in your closet? (laughs) Right. I want to skip to one season in particular, and without giving too much of the plot away, because I I want people to check out this series who haven't seen it, and I want them to watch the whole thing, because I think that's part of the full experience. But I want to talk about season three, and you guys for much of the season, essentially shot this thing on the road, driving cross-country. Hauling um, a vintage camper trailer from the 1960s. <laughs> talk to us about some of, if you could just give us a couple highlights, maybe some good, maybe some bad of what that was like, because I'm sure it had to have been an experience and a half. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we set out to um, make America gay again. <laughs> we wanted to reclaim the great American tradition of the road trip movie. Mm-hmm. I love, love, love those movies growing up. We have, you know, I cite my sources. All of my references are embedded in the titles of the show, uh, titles of that season from, uh, and this is not an American example, but the first episode being a nod to Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, a uh, nod to um, My Own Private Idaho. There's a, a nod to Thelma and Louise in there. Mm-hmm. Literally, spoiler alert, get Thelma and Louise. <laughs> um, and it's just something that I've, I've always, um, that's always struck me in driving across this country is that I feel like an expatriate. I don't necessarily feel like I own it, like it's mine. Um, and I wonder what the experience of a straight cisgendered white man driving across Wyoming is, you know, because all I can think about is Matthew Shepard. So I'm curious, right. like, does he just think, oh, these roll, like, these great plains, these rolling hills, these purple mountains, majesty, um, this Mount Rushmore, it is my birthright. Yeah. You know, like, I don't necessarily have that experience. I think, like, oh, I hope I don't, like, get put on a fence. (laughs) You know, like, I'm from Mississippi, and so, like, the quote-unquote real America is is where I'm from, you know, and and I in many ways feel like an expatriate. So I set out to kind of reclaim the country a little bit and, uh, you know, drive across the country shooting a queer-ass, gay-ass web series. That's great. That's so beautiful. And it's... What you said spoke to me because I grew up here. I grew up, you know, in L.A. or just outside of L.A. 
And I remember the first time going to the South, and I remember the first time going through the Midwest, uh, and as a brown man, I was like, whoa. Um, it's a different country. It's a different country. And it wasn't even, like, I mean, I encountered some stuff, but it wasn't like, you know, I didn't get, like, jumped or anything like that, or I didn't encounter any violence. I did uh, encounter some overt racism, and I remember driving through the Midwest in 2016, right before the election, and just seeing, like, driving through Trump country, you know, feeling it. That's uh, when we shot. Yeah, right yeah. Before the election. <laughs> so that must have been... Uh, it was interesting. Eye-opening and, and, experience. You know, like I think a lot of people, I um, wrongly was confident that Hillary Clinton was going to get elected. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I kind of had some like built-in defiance in that sense and also um, a weird sense of faith in um, places like Michigan and uh, Wisconsin that was shattered. Right. Um, it's definitely an interesting experience. And, it, you know, it's so interesting to like, jump and talking from season one to season three. Um, I was talking about season one with somebody actually earlier today. Um, and I kind of, re- I referred to it as juvenilia, you know, like it, 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 but it's obviously not just juvenilia. It's out there in a big way. It's the first thing anybody watches when they are become acquainted with me as a storyteller and a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we shot it for $26,000 in my living room, and I was really learning as I went. Now with season four, everything's changed. We've gone from 10-minute episodes to six half-hour episodes, and it really feels like a TV show. Right. That short-form sort of first season um, feels like a different animal. It almost feels like a prologue for what comes later. Yeah. Um, but I, I rewatched it um, right before going into post-production on season four. Um, and, you know, I, I did find it a satisfying viewing experience. It it's like, damn good. It it's really totally is damn good. It's different from what it is now, but it it's uh, it's this, the innocence of it is like really as a old, haggard, homosexual now, I, I look back on it and I'm like, wow, that's such a time capsule of like, um, 26 year old me, mm-hmm. you know, in a really cool way, both as an artist and and as, just as a person. Yeah, it's. I mean, I really love that season, and it's got it's got a lot of heart. And um, you know, Constance, Constance Wu. Uh, yes, is it for she's those so good. Episodes? Kathy is so good. She's still one of my favorite characters that I've ever written. She's she's hilarious. I know that character multiple times <laughs> <laughs> throughout my life. Um, so we've talked about putting putting the series to bed and, you know, you guys started it in 2012 and finished in 2019. And as we talked about, the LGBT community has made some leaps and bounds since then, you know. What is it like to look back on the series from that perspective to kind of see where – obviously there's still a lot of work to be done. But um, just to see how queer culture is viewed now as opposed to it was seven, eight years ago. I think that we are all so much more educated than we were seven years ago thanks to the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also put us at each other's throats in a way that I think is not always constructive. Um, but I am grateful to it, and I think it's a some positive because it has exposed me to so much uh, in terms of understanding and empathizing with others' experiences that – I don't think was possible mm-hmm. seven, 10, 15 years ago, unless you just like actively, actively sought out the specifics of other communities' experiences. Now I feel like you have to actively avoid those experiences and you have to willfully ignore and avoid others' experiences now. You have yeah. to choose 
to not be empathetic and to not hear other people's experiences. At least in the corners of the internet that I traffic, uh, if you aren't exposed to intersectionality, um, I think it's because you're actively avoiding it. I think it's because you are uh, choosing to enter an echo chamber of people who not only think like you but look like you. <laughs> you know, like I, I, th- I think you have to actively seek that out in 2020. And that's that's an ultimately a really, really good thing that um, we have all this information available to us. And I think the younger generation has it right. Uh, and it, it fills me with hope whenever I, uh, I, th- I think about what it must be like coming of age in 2020 and having this kind of font of knowledge available to you about others' experience. We're talking about hope, my friends. We are talking about hope. We're talking about Kit Williamson's show – East Siders, uh, and it is available on Netflix. I implore all of you to check out seasons one, two, three, and four, all streaming on Netflix. We've got one more segment coming up with Kit, and that is our favorite segment, Gimme Three. If you like the music in our show, all songs are performed by the band Dub8. Check out their new EP, Ayudame, available on iTunes and Spotify. All right, welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are talking with Kit Williamson, and we are into our favorite segment, Give Me Three, where our guests give us three under-the-radar pieces. Could be film, TV, could be a play, stuff that's inspired them, inspired their work. So, Kit, give us your first one, please. Okay, first, I don't know how under-the-radar it is, but for some viewers it might be, for some listeners at home, it might be. uh, I'm going to go with the work of John Cameron Mitchell. I'm going to say, oh, yeah. Hell yeah. first and foremost, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Huge. One of Sonya's favorites of all time. Oh, we have a Hedwig yes. and the Angry Inch poster in our living room, actually. Oh, really? Yes. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it just informed me in so many ways. It was the first time I, I really saw a depiction of drag. Uh, I loved the kind of way in which it uh, brought in Plato and kind of other sort of uh, the legacy of, of queer people and um, the international component to it. The music is just so memorable. The performance by John Cameron Mitchell is a tour de force, and I can't believe that he, you know, wrote and directed and starred in that. Yeah. What, a, what a feat. It's it's a powerhouse movie. It like, like you said, it works. It's so dense on so many levels, but at the same time, it's just so much fun. Like, it could be a complete brain piece if you want it to be, yeah. <laughs> and it could be a complete popcorn piece if you want it to be. It's... It's epic. It, it, I think it's required viewing and required uh, rewatching. Absolutely. It, it's something I come back to time and again. Hedwig and the Angry Inch. If you haven't seen it, uh, you need to check it out. Uh, pause the podcast right now. Stop what you're doing and go watch it. Next, I'm going to name check Edward Albee. Okay, cool. And not just because my cat is named after him. <laughs> um, but this is a, a queer playwright who wrote, a lot of kind of seminal works of the American theater, um, all of which I think have a queer sensibility, uh, if not queer characters or coded queer characters, uh, from uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf to Zoo Story to The Goat or Who is Sylvia, which is the one that I want to talk about specifically. Um, I Don't quote me on this. I think he won the Pulitzer Prize for this. Uh, but The Goat is a play. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a 
satire. It's a, a just a viciously mean, dark comedy about a uh, a man who comes home to tell his family that he has fallen in love with a goat named Sylvia, and the fallout <laughs> of that drama <laughs> ensues. <laughs> drama ensues. Uh, it, it just asks a lot of really hard, uh, almost any unanswerable questions about. Uh, queerness and otherness and families and uh, expectations of how we fit into the world and where the line is. Cause, and I think it does it so brilliantly because regardless of what, like, focus on the family and other assholes uh, who want to br- drag us back to the 1950s may think, you will be very hard-pressed to find a homosexual who um, – is a proponent of bestiality. <laughs> we don't actually think you should be able to marry your goats. We don't actually think you should be able to marry inanimate objects or multiple right. inanimate objects or whatever it is that you claim uh, the slippery slope uh, will lead to of <laughs> us being allowed to have our uh, relationships recognized by the government. And, and it kind of tackles that in a really smart way that I think speaks to um, both kinds of audience members. Hmm. Interesting. I'm not familiar with it, but I'm going to check it out. The Goat. The Goat or Who is Sylvia by or Edward Albee. Uh, and then my next one is is maybe not that under the radar either, but I'm going to go with Tennessee Williams. Oh, yeah. You know, a as classic. a son of the South, I grew up in Mississippi, and his work just was, was the first thing that I fell in love with. If you want to know about subtext, read Tennessee Williams. Mm-hmm. If you want to know about crackling, uh, viciously, wickedly funny dialogue, read Edward Albee. Absolutely. Kit, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an honor to have you on. Uh, we hope you will come back. Uh, once you get your next piece going. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on another episode of Film Forward. We got more sweet-ass episodes coming towards you very, very soon. Kit, thank you again. Thanks for having me. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time. <laughs> <laughs>